your agility as a company is your competitive edge. And if you're not moving fast enough, your competitors are going to take your lead. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Status Go. We're doing things a little bit differently in this episode, as we tend to do from time to time. Back in November of 2020, we held a cloud strategy summit. And one of our presenters, Ron Teeter, had such an impactful discussion and such valuable insights that we wanted to adapt his presentation to a podcast format. So while things move through a little differently, I think you're really going to get a lot out of this episode. He talks about pain points that led him to make the jump to the cloud. He goes through a timeline that discusses their entire journey and connects the outcomes that came with each phase of the journey. So I think you're in for a real treat. Here we go. So I have the unique pleasure of getting to introduce Ron and and having a little chat here. So Ron Teeter, he's the the head of engineering at Jobbyte. He has, over the past 25 plus years, uh, taken many of roles in software development, engineering, architecture at companies like Disney and Aptian. He's got a tremendous amount of experience on-prem, and I would say probably someone who has as much experience as possible in cloud based on how early Jobbyte adopted AWS. So um, really excited to hear about his journey Ron joined Jobbyte in 2013. That was was when their cloud journey began. He was able to rise up the ranks from a senior architect to the head of engineering now. And so I think he's got a really unique and interesting story to tell about how the adoption of AWS has gone within Jobbyte, his learnings along the way. Um, I I know he's going to help you guys see out ahead um, if you're earlier on in your journey. And I think most importantly, which is it it can be elusive, he's going to talk specifically about the outcomes that came from Jobbyte's adoption of the cloud. So I think, Chris, you kind of already tied some pieces together in terms of the fact that Chris and I met Ron as we were having conversations with a combination of existing customers and Um, and other folks who are out in the industry. And as we learned about Ron's journey, and as we were sharing some of the things that we were working on here at InterVision, there was just such a strong tie between the lessons he had learned. And, oh man, if I would have had that sort of thing when I was earlier in our adoption process, it would have made my life easier. But It's also one of those things, I think, Ron, you were quick to point out, but man, you don't know this until you're in the thick of it. Would you agree with that? Of course. Yeah. There's a certain amount of learning you get just by doing it yourself, Um, you know, picking yourself up by your bootstraps, as they say. Um, You know, we, we got into a situation where we did do too much outsourcing with another VAR, right? And that ultimately created a situation that we had to, um, you know, take control over. Um, and, and so it was uh, eye-opening what we didn't know. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what Ron's going to do is he's going to walk you through, give you some background on his journey, and then we're going to camp on, there's a couple of slides towards the end, in terms of lessons learned and, and the outcomes, like I said, and really also the way he views cloud. So Ron, I'll hand things over to you and, and you can walk us through this journey of yours. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to to share our experience with your uh, constituents today. Really feels good to be able to get out and and share our our experience and tell our story. Let me start by just doing a brief introduction to what Jobbyte is and who we are. Um, Many people know us, you know, some of your customers are our customers, but Jobbyte is a market leading talent acquisition software provider. Uh, We provide solutions that help our customers recruit and hire top talent so that they can build their teams to accelerate their business. And we are just passionate about innovation in this space. The company started in 2005 with the intent to take a very manual paper-oriented process and digitally transform it. And we continue to look for those opportunities to to see where can we take this next, right? Seeking a job is something that everybody does. Everybody understands what it's like to be a job seeker. And we know how frustrating it can be. And our job is really to try and take that frustration out of the process and make it more successful. We actually do this pretty well. Uh, you know, aside from just being, you know, acknowledged by analysts and um, our customers as being an excellent service provider, We've actually helped a lot of people find jobs. We've been around for a while, but we've seen a tremendous amount of growth uh, coming out of 2014 and 15, and we put millions of people to work on our platform. And that feels really good, right? There's something intrinsically satisfying about helping somebody else find a job. So when we were talking about having this discussion, I really kind of put my thoughts down into what, what were we doing and, and what were the, the rationales for why we made the change that we did, right? Uh, we were using traditional on-prem hosting, using a VAR. You know, you have your standard benefits, but it also comes with some challenges that we'll talk about. But then, you know, we had kind of a, a life-changing moment and we needed a new plan. And I'll talk about why we moved from what we consider to be survival through agility and into efficiency. So um, we started in 2005, one server, one database, you know, nothing to write home about, but we had an innovative product that was solving the problem and it was delivering value to our customers. And as it grew, we needed more help. So we moved that into a VAR to handle that. We hired remote hands and staff to handle that. And we said, Given that level of investment, we really only need one FTE for our side of the shared responsibility. And we'll hire up engineering and product managers so that we can go build great product. And that was really a good thought and an option at the time, uh, especially from the 2008 economic meltdown. Uh, We took that opportunity to build a new product, right? You know, hiring was one of the first things that tanked when the economy went south. So instead of, you know, just sheltering and waiting it out, we actually took that opportunity to build a new product. However, we were having some challenges with our VAR. You know, 
If I needed a new system, it could be at least six days and sometimes a week and a half. Um, we were trying to get database backups from production into the staging environment so that we could do uh, performance and scale testing as well as business continuity testing. And it would take over 30 hours for a fairly small database to be rehosted for us. And these kinds of things were just really slowing the business down at a time when we needed it to go fast. And then as the economy started to re recover in 2013, we actually started seeing a lot more incidences related to scale and reliability and their incident response was unpredictable. Sometimes it was world-class and sometimes we had to try and track somebody down to see if they could you know, restart a system for us. And it was creating a lot of friction between us and our customers. Seven years ago today, I was actually looking for a job and I was using JobBite to look for my job. And it dawned on me, I knew somebody at JobBite who was the CTO at the time. And I thought maybe I could reach out and just see if they need help. Uh, and so, you know, next week would be the anniversary of my interview. And in December, I started uh, at the beginning of the month. Uh, December was an interesting month because that's traditionally one of the highest hiring months of the year is as people are starting to prepare for their hiring for the following year. And we had an economic recovery underway. I, I think Challenging would be the kindest word I could say about December 2013. Um, it's one of those indelible moments in your career that you remember. Uh, you know, during the last three weeks, we had three major database outages due to cluster desync. We had failures of mission critical systems that in our vernacular are snowflakes, meaning there isn't any other system like it. It's totally unique. And in some cases, we didn't know exactly what made that system unique. So rebuilding it was a challenge. And then we had networking issues that were just inexplicable. And the bar could not explain these despite, you know, waiting for hours on phone calls. The net result of all of this is we had over 100 hours of downtime in three weeks. Just try to imagine what that would do to your business. Um, it cost us customers and it cost us reputation at a time we really didn't want to be having those kinds of issues. We were on kind of a good groove and growth was moving forward again uh, with the economic recovery. And more importantly, this failure to control the situation on our part opened the door for some of our smaller competitors. Um, you know, they never probably would have gotten a beach hold in our space if we hadn't you know, missed the beat here. So this became a transformative moment for us. You know, this is when operations became an investor and board level conversation for the first time. And I think, you know, that's something that Jamie maybe alluded to earlier is I think digital transformation is an investor discussion at this point. Boardrooms are talking about this. It's not something that VPs and the C-suite are talking about anymore. Um, companies are fighting for their survival in their market space only because of what they can do. Uh, relative to their competitors. You know, af after the last failure on the 26th of uh, December, we were kind of sitting around going, but, but we did it right, didn't we? I mean, what did we do wrong, right? Why did this outcome happen to us? And we spent a lot of time reflecting on that and trying to understand what we needed to do strategically to ensure that this never happens to us again.
So the outcome of that reflection was we've got to do something immediately for the survival of the company. And we know, you know, we had been exploring and teasing the water with AWS for a while. Uh, we knew that eventually we were going to need to make this journey. Uh, we'd provisioned an account, we'd created a direct connect, and we had moved a couple of experimental services into AWS so that we could kind of run hybrid mode. Um, hybrid saved us. I mean, I'll, I'll just put it bluntly. We were able to fail over the majority of our application compute here in a matter of weeks once we understood what we needed to do. Moving the main database over was ultimately the long pole. Uh, it took us about six months to get ready to do that. Um, and the way we approached this is that we, the problem is that our engineers are software engineers. They don't know infrastructure. We don't have enough operational expertise on the team. So let's go hire some staff and let's figure out what we're going to do first. Okay, we're going to create some new networks. We're going to provision storage. We have to make decisions about which AWS services we're going to embrace and which ones we're going to defer. And then the goal is obviously we're fighting this issue with our VAR is being increasingly less competent in managing our main database. Uh, and so whether that's a skill gap on their part or a design gap on our part, we have to own that and we need to take control. Um, we, we, we made some good choices, I think, at the time, um, going with SES and S3. Um, using RDS where it made sense, hosting things where it made sense. Um, cloud formation came a little bit later, and I'll talk more about that on the, the next uh, section. But we, we looked at all of AWS's services that were available at the time, and we made an explicit decision. Is that something that we're going to do or defer? Um, the goal here being, if I need to rewrite my code, it's going to slow me down. But if I can use something that's cloud scale, it will require less maintenance and support long term. So you have to make those decisions, you know, very carefully. Um, the other thing that we did is we immediately recognized the value of having a partnership with uh, our vendors and AWS. Right. Our biggest probably oversight in managing our prior VAR is we didn't have a good relationship with them. And I think that was probably a bi-directional situation. If we had, maybe we would have a different outcome, but we needed to make sure that going forward, we never let that happen again. Um, we've been collaborating with AWS for years on new services. You know, we were one of the very first people to embrace Aurora um, when it was coming out. Uh, data migration service, we used that to move our, our SQL Server database over to Aurora on MySQL. So not only shifting from a hosted to a managed service, but also shifting across database dialects. Very successful, and we talked about it at reInvent last year. So understanding that you have to take control and, and drive this change uh, is, is really the message that we learned here. In 2016, 2017, okay, the business is safe and we've got a little bit of experience. What do we like? What do we don't like? Uh, this gave us an opportunity to, again, reflect and say, what do we need to do? Well, we've moved into AWS and we did it all pretty much manually, right? We wrote some scripts around the AWS CLI and we did some things, you know, in, in a couple instances with cloud formation. 
by using template generation. Um, but the reality was we had development, QA, staging, and fraud, and none of the environments were identical. Each one had been individually crafted to meet the needs of that environment. And so, you know, as we continued to break down our monolithic software into microservices, we had four times the problem. Uh, and so one of the things that we, you know, decided we needed to do was figure out a way to do our, you know, standardize our environments and then automate this process of provisioning infrastructure. And this is when we really started saying, well, we've got an engineering team and we've got an operations team, but they're not really working well together. And so let's formally embrace DevOps and let's see if we can take it to the next level at Jobite. We combined that with a you know, retransformation using Agile to say, how do we make it sustainable, right? The ultimate goal here was how do I get the engineers to provision their own infrastructure as needed, right? That was the goal. Um, and, you know, it's certainly easier to do today than it was then, but I think we've come a long way in understanding how we manage that. So then starting in 2018, we really started focusing on being able to understand the costs that are associated, right? Most people start with the, well, cloud's expensive. And it's like, no, that's not quite accurate. The bill may be higher at times, but your opportunity cost or your total cost of ownership is actually lower because you're using your staff to focus on the things that are important to your business. I, I don't ever want to see a PDU or a hard drive or an SSD again in my life. That has no value for our customers. That's definitely something I want somebody else taking care of going forward. So we started thinking about how do we maintain, how, how do we get more cost efficiency, right? And so we started using dynamic workloads because we can scale. You know, we used auto scaling groups and we embraced the spot market at the time. Uh, we partnered with a company called Spotins, which has been acquired by NetApp, to predict where the prices were going to be the best and move our workloads dynamically to maintain lower cost. It, it's even cheaper than having a reserved instance. Uh, and, and so, you know, thinking about how to be smart about these things really started shaping our thinking. We went through our environments, uh, as I mentioned before, and we made everything as code. So everything that we want to change in our environment starts as a code change going into Git, going through a peer review, and then being merged. I think that's, you know, whether that's monitoring change, whether that's uh, an infrastructure change, an alerting change, everything is code. Even uh, the tools that we use in our SDLC are also code. So the tools that drive the change are also managed in code. Um, and I think you have to have that, that mindset so that you've got the best outcome. Uh, internally, we have this thing that, you know, a, a value that we, say, I code it, I own it. Um, this is kind of what we're working on right now. Engineering is going to take on-call for every component that they own. Um, it, it, it's not fair or efficient for someone else to try and diagnose a problem that you, you know, is in your code, is in your system that you know the most about, right? That only seems to delay the response time. So, you know, we're now going through this transformation saying, if you don't want to get woken up in the middle of the night because an alarm is going off, you need to make, improve the quality and 
the reliability of your software. It's not about shipping product features. It's about shipping customer outcomes. Uh, and one thing that uh, we, we actually made some really good progress on this year is understanding that there's a different way to buy software, right? Um, if you're thinking that the bill is what's important, you can reduce the bill significantly. Uh, we've cut our costs 30% year over year just by thinking smart about how we buy the services that we operate. Part of that was with the AWS savings plan instead of reserved instances. And the other one is using institutional buyers to get leverage. So think Costco for software, right? It gives you great value for your money and it, it can significantly um, you know, reduce that bill so that you can take those savings and reallocate it to something that's more valuable. So what I wanna try and do is connect the timeline to the outcomes. When we started with our higher product in 2005, it's really, this is what we did, right? It was a monolithic application running on a monolithic database. Um, as we grew and introduced new functions like our social um, network uh, job posting and our referral product in 2008, right? We started having to address some of the scale, right? Adding search outside of the database, adding caches to the infrastructure, right? Starting to think about how is this going to scale as we start getting more load? Um, in 2012, we made a significant investment in rewriting parts of the higher application to make it more scalable and more performant. Uh, we also introduced microservices and then moving things to a central storage uh, off of uh, you know uh, shared disk on a Windows host uh, were things that we invested in. But again, it's still within that scope of this is the speed the business can move, right? We wanted to go faster, but we couldn't. 2013, we delivered three brand new products. And we also saw, hey, we're going to start sharding our data into a, a NoSQL system and a data warehouse so that we can start thinking about how we scale beyond our, our single database origin. Um, and this is where we started very first introducing some of the cloud concepts using a CDN, um, thinking about having some hybrid capability. Uh, you know, the first things that we moved to AWS was actually the search cluster. And then you see through the cloud transformation in 13, 14, and 15, right, that we really made the transition in six months. But I have this across that because it's around the learnings. Um, not just the event, you know, that we accomplished in June of 2014. It was by the end of 2015, we understood what we didn't do right. And so we needed to take a different approach. Um, but you can see every single year, more stuff is happening. Uh, in 2015, we built a brand new product to extend our feature set beyond just the hiring and qualifying aspects of the process, but also onto the onboarding side. Uh, with that came, uh, you know, top level encryption vault storage and, and document services so that we could print PDFs to marry back to the physical processes that are required to do onboarding. But those came as microservices. Uh, in 2016, we continue to move forward. In 2017, 
starting to use some serverless with Lambda. There are use cases that just don't make sense to run a host 24 by seven. And it's a perfect opportunity for a function as a service solution. We start going even further. 2018, the world had to deal with GDPR. Um, it took us about six months to make the product fully compliant, which would have been impossible if we hadn't had the agility that we had gained through this. In 2019, we did something that was a company first. We purchased three other companies, each one with their own cloud infrastructure, each one with their own set of products and features as an unprecedented scale. Uh, I think we went from about 8 million lines of code under active management to close to 15 through that acquisition. We also moved to the AWS Aurora for our primary database. And honestly, we've not had a single issue since we moved a year ago. Uh, we just completed moving one of the telemetry databases to Aurora last Friday, where it took us six months to do the first one. It took us six weeks to do the second one. Uh, with an inexperienced staff. And, and these are kind of a, when you want to do something, knowing how to do it and having that ability there allows you to move the business faster than you, you know, probably think you can. And then finally, um, this year has been a watershed for us uh, you know, because we bought, you know, we basically are integrating four companies. Uh, we needed a centralized IDP so that there's a single long gun for all four companies. That was something we delivered in June. We rebuilt the video platform uh, in September uh, to eliminate the dependency on Flash. We've introduced a new version of our in intelligent messaging, and we acquired our AIML partner as well. So we're now at six acquisitions in the last two years. Everything's fully integrated and functioning normally. And we're now talking about making the Kubernetes containers transition um, as well. The key here is the cloud transformation allowed us to scale and the scale gave us velocity. And we are able to move. We've grown our business six times and we've improved our time to market by three. And we think we're not done yet. We think that can still be improved. So let's talk about the lessons. Uh, lesson number one, get help. We did this the hard way. Uh, I don't regret doing it. Uh, there, there weren't a lot of other options at the time. Uh, if people think back to where the cloud was in 2013, it was still pretty new and pretty raw. Um, and we kind of grew up as the service matured uh, with it. Um, but there are definitely things we would have done differently if we had known better. Um, and, and that's where you know having companies can you know help you with the seen it done it are essential to a successful outcome the other one is think about multiple phase programs right don't try to do one event right our lift and shift was the beginning of our journey not the end you have to be thinking about what's going to make this sustainable and supportable for the next decade um, and and for us it was we can't have you know, I can't hire enough dot operations staff to grease the skids for the engineering team. At some point, I need the engineers to have the same level of understanding of their infrastructure as they do their code. And so we chose to go this path of engineering. We'll have the tools, 
to permit, you know, to define, design, and deploy their own infrastructure as needed. And then the third one is obviously consistently challenge the business because you have to make this as a business owner problem. You know, it's often seen as a technology problem and it's not. It has to be clear to the investors and the C-suite that this will change the outcome of the business. Your agility as a company is your competitive edge. And if you're not moving fast enough, your competitors are going to take your lead. So something Jobite's been working on internally for a couple of years now, uh, as we've learned through this, you know, you'll have a lot of people talk about DevOps or DevSecOps or FinOps. Um, and, and the problem is each one of these paradigms is focusing on what's important to the buyer, right? And, and I think what's important is you have to look at the holistic picture and make that the goal. Uh, and so, you know, we call this FinSec DevOps uh, just because that's the order in which you need to solve these. Um, you've got to have budget. You know, there's no point talking about deploying something if you don't have budget, if you don't have goals, if you don't have ROI metrics. Uh, same thing with security. You have to know what the endpoint requirements are. You have to constantly challenge your security posture because the, the threat landscape is constantly evolving. In terms of development, people can write code, but can they evolve their designs over time? You know, are you spending enough investment thinking about refactoring so that your code is maintainable and thus it doesn't cost you velocity? And then finally, operationalities. Are you holding the people accountable who are writing this software to the MTTA and the MTTR? If not, when is it going to ever get better, right? And so this holistic paradigm is something that um, we're trying to expose uh, and get some more light on and start conversations around because I think this is going to be the, the, the next thing that we as an industry need to acknowledge is these aren't separate concerns. That's what made DevOps a problem in the first place, right? If your finance team isn't involved in the decision-making, you're probably setting yourself up for failure. And with that, I will uh, end my discussion and turn it back over to Alicia. Yeah, so um, thank you, Ron, this was great. I think we've got time for just a question or two. So I would say the first thing that I'm sure most people are wondering is, if you had to start today, what would that look like? So at the time it was survival, agility, efficiency. But if you're getting started today, where would you start? How would you start? How would you look at this initiative? Yeah, I, I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we had was we didn't have as good of an understanding of our own application as we thought we did, right? Um, because we had delegated how it was deployed, you know, we we kind of thought we knew how the load balancers worked and um, you know, oh yeah, you know, you just draw a block diagram up on the board. And, and the reality was, you know, we needed to have a better understanding of how our application's design was actually manifested in terms of its infrastructure. Um, and I think a lot of IT companies have outstanding documentation around that and have good documentation around change control. 
But generally, you know, I think it's been on the operations side and engineering's kind of, you know, hey, I wrote my thing and I gave it to IT and it got deployed and everything's good. Um, having us close that knowledge gap with the team that is responsible for doing the work was essential, you know, and I think one of the things I would do differently is instead of trying to problem solve the problem, the first thing I would do is educate the team on what it was that we were talking about, right? We had, you know, just weeks of time that we lost because people were trying to solve problems, but they didn't have the foundational understanding of, you know, well, how does the, you know, how do I translate this thing from an F5 load balancer to an ELB, right? And somebody would go off and do research. And then, you know, two weeks later, it'd be, yeah, no, they, they're not the same. We need something different, right? There's just a, a at the time, a general lack of understanding about the capabilities of the 2B environment, right? And, and a lot of those learnings then came back in to help us re-architect the solution. Um, but I go back to my first point, right? Learn from somebody who's already done it, right? Go out there and find somebody, you know? And, and one of the reasons I'm glad to be here with InterVision today is, you know, you provide this exact service. Um, and I think it's essential to have a good partner in that journey uh, so that you're not left scratching your head saying, okay, what do I do first, right? It was obvious what we needed to do first was, you know, we needed to get as much across into the hybrid environment uh, across to, into the cloud side as quickly as we could. That's easy for compute. But then we start talking about network routing and load balancing and databases and caches and, you know, the complexity can become overwhelming very quickly. Ron, this was awesome. Thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.